0: Face
1: Hi folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Tuesday, September the 22nd. This is episode 2736 of the Survival Podcast. Today's title of the episode is Backyard Aquatics as a Permaculture Design Element. Hold on! Do not stop listening! Because I don't really have interest in this subject. Yes, you do. do. Well, you can't tell me. Yeah, I can. That's what I do. I'm a podcaster. I tell people things. Anyway, seriously. um, If you're not huge on permaculture... It's okay. This can be a permaculture design element. It will be. You don't have to call it that. You don't have to think about it that way. Um, Backyard aquatics means that we are going to play with water. In particular, we're going to play with water that things live in. And This is not aquaponics, though aquaponics could be part of it. Um, It is aquatic systems for the purpose of beauty, diversity, wildlife, uh, habitat, fish that we can either eat or just simply look at, uh, ways we can make money. There's so much in this. And this all comes from something that I think people say without really thinking about the fact that it's more than a simple truth. Most people know this saying, water is life. And to me, it really is beyond a simple truth. Rather, it's a fundamental reality. And one can make the case that the most sustainable systems in history come from island cultures, mountain cultures, and specifically Asian cultures. And all of them used aquatic components in their systems, every single one of them. I'm not talking about irrigation ditches, unless those irrigation ditches stayed full all the time and grew fish. Okay, Or they were something like a chinampa system in Central America. These systems were inevitably incredibly diverse and incredibly productive. But the Asian systems that really use aquatics and fish to their highest level were summed up one time in a PDC class that I heard Bill Mollison state the following in. And I'm paraphrasing here, but it's close to what he said. He said if you give a man a Chinese man a pond the size of a teacup, he'll put a fish in it. And he he meant that as an imperative that so should you. If you can put water into a system, do it, and if a water will support life, put that life in that water. And I did an update video of my gardens today. My my four garden bed system, they're all right angles, and they're very symmetrically, very Asian design oriented around a 12 by 12 pond. And everybody that looks at that initially, because they know how, you know, at least it knows me, knows how much I am into aquaponics and, and aquatics and everything. They always want to know, well, how, how are they connected, right? Like, are they wicking beds and the pond fills them or no? It's They're, they're separate elements. Their connection is that they are near each other, and designed off of each other. But I can tell you that I have never had a first-year garden, especially one that I've done so little to help, do as well as this this garden system has done. I, I think next year that this will be a garden that will be as productive as my Arlington, Texas gardens were after seven years of hard work. In a And honestly, a place where there was a lot more to work with, because while those were raised beds, when the roots got to the bottom of the bed, they had some place to go. It was deep clay soil, which has its own challenges, but at least it's soil. Um, To do something like has been done here in year one without being really good about taking care of it, because I haven't this year because, well, when COVID hit, I put a lot of work into the show. I for the first three months after COVID became a thing, I was working till seven o'clock every night on the podcast, and and my land suffered for it. But thanks to seven years of work on this land, the land is very resilient this year, and the birds and everything else just did what it needed to be done. But the garden, really, I kind of just I did some things right, but I did a lot of not doing enough. I did a lot of not irrigating enough. I did a lot of letting plants get stressed more than they ever should have. And this is in the first year where the soil's not developed, the life is not there. It's just not expected to be a great year. And if you look at that video from today, it's explosive what's happening in the second flush of growth as we've come out of our heat of summer. So how does that pertain to aquatics since that pond is just sitting there and the gardens are sitting next to them? There's things going on there that would not be happening without that pond. Chief among them is predator and pollinators that are showing up, <laughs> but a big part of it is simply the massive amount of aquatic vegetation that is constantly going into those garden beds to the point where I have to remove some every few, every few days so that there's a hole big enough to feed the fish through. And that has done so much for the soil. So when I was looking at that, and then I was looking at all my other aquatic systems, I was like, this is a subject we need to talk to about again. We haven't talked about it since early spring. So that's what we're going to talk about today. And remember, since water really is life, it belongs in your plans. And if you're going to store water, you might as well store water that is productive while it's being stored. All right, before we do that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day, number one today is, well, who is it? It is KnifeKits.com, long-term sponsor. Been with us, I think, since the first year we had sponsors, which would be 2009. If it wasn't 2009, it was 2010. Either way, it's 10 years or more that KnifeKits.com has sponsored the Survival Podcast. If you check them out, you'll see why. When we vetted them as a sponsor, we we literally couldn't find a bad thing about them. And generally, when we were vetting sponsors early on, it's not something we really have to do anymore. But I I had a team that vetted sponsors in the beginning because I didn't want to take on somebody that you know was a bad idea. And usually we'd find something negative, and you'd have to say, you know, any business that's been in business for any length of time is going to have somebody complaining about something, and you're going to have to like decide whether or not that really outweighs all the good. Not in the case of knife kits. We could not find a negative thing that anybody had to say about them. Uh, And, man, I'm so glad we brought them on. They have enabled so many members of this audience to get into the craft of knife making, holster making, and other things like that, they've enabled people to just make really great family heirlooms, just learn new skills, some people to do side hustles, some people to put together even full-time businesses. Check them out today at KnifeKits.com. Next up today, the Free State Project. If you want liberty in your lifetime, consider just visiting New Hampshire. That's, that's what the Free State Project is asking people to do now. Instead of just saying you're going to move, go up there, contact them, have a vacation, and get to know the people that are part of the Free State Project. And once you do that, then make a decision about whether or not walking to freedom via New Hampshire works for you. Check them out today at fsp.org forward slash visitnh, forward slash visitnh. With that, let's go ahead and start digging into this. I want to start out with a quote of the day that when you first hear it, you may not think really jives with the subject of backyard aquatics and permaculture, but boy, does it. In fact, it couldn't be a better quote, and it's again. I don't know if I'm going to keep doing Buckminster Fuller. I know we had Buckminster Fuller yesterday, but I'm sure I could do Buckminster Fuller week with quotes because a man has so many brilliant things to say. Um, but this is my this is my all-time favorite quote, and I've actually had it on the air before. And it is: wealth is a measure of a person's ability to survive so many days forward. So how long can you survive forward without working? Without doing anything except using what you have, what you already possess, that includes money. That inc- it does include money because if you can buy stuff, then you can survive for it. But what Buckminster was trying to get through to people's mindset here was, it ain't just about money. If a person has a giant apple tree that drops, you know, t- twenty or thirty bushels of apples a year on their property. It's a tremendous piece of wealth. It has a lot to do with the ability to feed yourself. If a person has a piece of land where fish and game alone can feed you, it is a tremendous piece of wealth. If a person has a business that they really are kind of a passive owner in that provides them an investment income, it's a tremendous bit of wealth. And let's go back to what I said at the beginning was a fundamental truth that we just see as kind of uh, uh, just basically a simple truth. And it really is a fundamental reality, and that is that water is life. When we build water-based systems on our property that we then function stack with into multiple things that they provide for us, we have wealth. And I believe that wealth is beyond what Buckminster said. Wealth is not just about the ability to survive forward. I think that's a very, very important piece of it. But it's also about beauty and luxury in your life. There's plenty of people who survive, one way or another, to be old, old people, but they're miserable most of their lives. Some of them without even working very hard. So they would have, by that definition, by itself, significant wealth. So to me, it's that ability to survive and to thrive simultaneously. And before I get into today's topic, I want to point something out about this quote. I have been fond of saying, wealth is not, me- or I'm sorry, debt is not measured in dollars, but in years. That when you have a debt, and it's going to take you 10 years of work to pay it off, that you measure it in years and what it takes from you for those 10 years. When I've put that out multiple times, many people have said, "Wow, that's pretty profound." I've never thought about it that way. It comes from this. This quote about the, the the essence of wealth is what created the the opposite effect in my mind as to well, then what is debt? If wealth is the ability to survive in time forward, then debt is where they have pre, where you have already you have already committed the time going forward to providing for what you had in the past. It's why debt is such an evil, evil form of slavery, and it's a form of slavery that we do to ourselves. Just something to think about, because today we're going to talk about building wealth instead of debt. So why would you want a garden pond anyway? All right, why would you want a garden pond anyway? And I'm going to say I'm not going to talk about putting in Let's get a bulldozer and bulldoze a quarter acre pond because we have beautiful red clay soil, and it's just easy, and we have a catchment basin, and we're just going to make a regular pond today. I am not talking about that today because that is kind of a subject unto itself. I want to be very universal. I want somebody that's on a quarter acre in total to be able to do something with the information I give today. However, that said, if you can do that, do that, and then it does everything we're talking about today too, and it does it more. So if you can put in real, typical, in-the-ground ponds, it is the way to go, all right? Now, but why would you want these little ponds? Anything from a couple hundred gallons using stock tanks to uh, a timber frame pond, like my really big one, or even my little one, any of these ponds that we have built. I have one that's uh, 250 gallons, but it's really wide and long, and a lot of surface area uh, built out of industrial drip trays that I got for like 50 bucks from Facebook Marketplace, why would you want to do any of that? Well, number one is beauty. There isn't anybody that comes to my property and looks at the water features and says, "Boy, that's an ugly thing." I'm. I don't know how you manage to look at that. Especially the timber frame ponds. People look at those and go, "Did did you have some professional build this?" I built it with a bunch of one I built by myself. That's two, the smaller one I built by myself too. So two I built by myself, and one I built with, you know, uh, students. It's, they're not hard, and they just look gorgeous. But water in the landscape has been done for aesthetic reasons for as long as humans have settled in one place and stayed there for any length of time. And there's a reason that waterfront property is expensive, even for people that don't fish or have a boat. Because just the what water does from not only seeing the water and seeing the view, but what it does as far as diversity of wildlife, etc., is also incredibly beautiful, Uh, which brings us to habitat. it's, It's really heartwarming to walk through my property and see fuchsia and blue and pink and green dragonflies buzzing around. I mean, just the dragonflies alone, the bees, the... Wasps to watch big red wasps come in, land on the water, and float on their legs and drink the water, and hopefully for them not to get eaten by a fish. Or the smarter ones, they land on the floating vegetation and drink water and then fly away. And think, I wonder how many pest insects that thing kills in a week to feed its young. Uh, There's so much habitat. Birds, frogs, snakes. And I haven't had any bad ones yet. There's so much diversity of wildlife. Fish. Fish, obviously, the one everybody thinks the first. And that can be for food or aesthetics or for profit. So we're not going to say much more about them because we'll get to some different fish and ideas in a minute. Just reserve water. I mean, think about it. How many people are like, man, I really wish I could store 4,000 gallons of water? I have 4,000 gallons of water. It also is full of fish. It does all the other things that we've talked about so far, and it's there it could be in a big black cylindrical ugly tank and i have those too by the way they're like uh, 2500 gallons a piece or something like that but it it they don't really give me the beauty that the ponds do and i have multiple ponds so i have all that reserve water oh it's poison if you drink it you'll die no i have ways of like i have filters and i have the ability to boil water so i have water for myself but without having to do that I can take the water that I have stored for me and drink it and cook with it and even bathe with it and I can use that reserve water a little at a time without completely depleting it and replenishing it with rain catch for irrigation for my animals to drink. People don't think about storing water for their animals and they should. Okay, Aquatic plants which can be edible, profitable, or just beautiful. And for the aquaponics components a lot of times I say you have aquaponics and you have aquatics but there's a lot of things you can do with larger scale aquatics that are aquaponic now if you start trying to grow tomatoes and peppers uh, with a a single wicking bed and a a properly stocked 2,000 gallon system it's not going to do well it's not going to get enough nutrient but things like that are more of a green, like Swiss chards and lettuces and stuff like that, they'll do just fine. And a lot of herbs, especially the stuff that's from the mint family, will do just fine. Um, water chestnut will do just fine. There's a lot of things we can do uh, that have an opportunity. Plants, that either we can eat them or we can propagate them. Uh, and by maybe we just grow them and they self-propagate and we can sell uh, clones, et cetera, as, as an income source. Uh, so there, that, that, that aquaponic component then goes back to the aquatic plant and, and the profitability, and they kind of merge together. And I want to talk about just some ideas for ponds that you can do, and they really don't have to be hard. Stock tanks. Stock tanks are the easy button. And in most places, a person could excavate a hole to drop a six-foot round or eight-foot round stock tank into fairly easily. And they can excavate that hole to put that thing almost flush to the ground, or they can excavate that hole to just put it, you know, 12 inches into the ground or what have you. It's really easy then to take some timbers, uh, four-by-fours or just landscape timbers, <coughs> build a frame around it if it's, it's sticking up out of the ground eight inches, and bring that up and kind of create a raised effect where it's a little less likely for somebody to fall in it or animals to get into it and you'll have plenty of dirt from the hole you dug to fill that in you now have it insulated it can just sit on top of the ground it can sit on a back porch you can facade it in like they are so flexible and when I built mine uh, using stock tanks they were the first ones I ever built I used galvanized tanks they work just fine I, I don't care what anybody says they work just fine uh, I've posted pictures on forums and stuff like that, and all my fish were going to die, according to everybody who looked at it. I've been waiting for all my fish to die for seven years now. They're going to rust through in a year. I've been waiting for that for seven years now. There's no rust on them. Um, they will eventually wear out. I wouldn't choose them again uh, if I was starting from scratch. The reason I got them in the first place is back when I put them in, I looked at the like you know, double-wall plastic-type uh, stock tanks, which I think are much better for longevity. And the only thing I could find was like this really bright color blue, like swimming pool blue. And I just thought aesthetically it looked like ass. And since it was poly, it was not going to be something you could easily paint. So I went with, with galvanized because they were more affordable, and I was going with smaller tanks, and it just seemed like for what I was building it made sense. So I built the system on two six-foot round, and those are 470 gallons apiece. And then three um, six foot long, two foot wide oval stock tanks at the top of that system that act as three holding ponds that overflow into the other two. And it worked out really well and it's worked out really good. Today, if I was going to put in a pond and I was going to use stock tanks to build it, especially big round stock tanks, I would use poly. I found a gray color and it looks great. Yeah, wherever it would be visible and display, it would look great. And they're affordable. And I've actually thought about eventually wrecking out all of the galvanized stuff and doing something with two of the big eight-footers, getting rid of the stuff that's out on the outside of my barn, those three individual tanks, or maybe doing something with those independently because they do give me a lot of utility for uh, shrimp and minnows and, and, and other things. I, I don't know. What I will tell you is if you're building aquatic systems, and you build something like I've got a pond here, and it's elevated, and i got a pond here, and it's half elevated, and i got a pond here, and it's in the ground, and I pump water up, and it cascades through, that is the best thing in the world you can do for the stability of the pond from a biological standpoint. It works fantastically. It's also the thing that you can do to put the most points of failure into a pond to eventually have something overflow or drain or whatever and go bad. And so you have to think about that redundancy, Okay. Um, definitely, but stock tanks excellent, wood frame ponds are kind of one of my loves in life now I use 2x4, not 2x4s I use 4x4s four and I put them together with structural wood screws they're incredibly strong, they don't cost any more than doing it with the big galvanized spikes and they're a hell of a lot easier to put in if you mess one up, they're a hell of a lot easier to get out um, I don't know what the limitation is, I don't know how big you can really go I did 12 by 12 the walls bow very, very slightly. You could certainly reinforce those walls with some vertical 4x4s on the outside, as long as you just make sure whatever structural wood screws you use to put in there don't go through the inner wall at all and puncture your liner, because they will. Um, But I definitely wouldn't try to do a 16 by 16 as high as I've done. I think you could easily do a 16 by 16 if it were only, let's say, two feet deep or two feet deep above ground. So a 16 by 16, two feet above grade to the water line, and one foot down into the ground, I don't think that would even be a challenge for it. I think the structure would hold just fine. One thing I didn't do with mine, and I kind of wish I did now, and I'm sure eventually some year I'll pay for it, is I should have coated the first course of the, the the 4x4s with like a tar or something, something to super preserve them in the ground. But I have something in mind that I won't get into today for if I ever start to have some deterioration of like the first course, a way that that can be ameliorated. Anyway, uh, going on from there, they are the best looking thing that I've ever done in these small type of ponds. You can also do concrete poured ponds where we are digging a hole and basically creating an in-ground swimming pool at a smaller scale uh, that we can do. That's limited only by your budget and skill. I do see a lot of potential for things like that to end up cracking and damaged. That's definitely permanent if it doesn't crack and get damaged. There is this this specific skill set in doing in-ground pools. They're very expensive, and there's a reason. It's not just the hole you can make a hole in most places anyways pretty cheap. So I like the idea, but I would be cautious with it. I would say that another thing that fits in this this realm though would be something like building a cinder block tank and mortared together, rebar reinforced et cetera, sealed what have you. And that'd be a, and you know pouring concrete down the holes. That would be a pretty rugged structure. And as long as it wasn't too deep pressure-wise, it should hold just fine. And there's a lot of ways that could be built into. And then cinder block paints wonderfully, so you could make it look however you wanted. You could also facade it and things like that with uh, other materials. So that would be another way to look at it. Um, Spill trays. The spill tray I'm working with is 250 gallons. I got it from Facebook Marketplace. It's 11 inches deep, and I think it's something like a little over 6 feet and a little over by 9 feet in the other dimension. It is not completely ideal as a garden pond because I believe deeper is better for a variety of reasons. I am definitely going to have to use supplemental heat on that one for my winters. I wouldn't even think about using it in northern climates unless it was going to be a seasonal pond. So I had a plan for whatever was in there to go away or what was going to be in there would be things that I'm not really worried about surviving through the winter. And it was just going to go away for the winter. Um, but in southern climates like mine, as long as you take proper uh, steps, it's really awesome because it's a lot of surface area. It would be a great pond if the main reason you were going to have a pond is that you wanted to be able to grow a whole bunch of, let's say, water hyacinth or water lettuce or uh, Zola or whatever to use as a mulch. And I know, mosquitoes, mosquitoes. Okay, you put a pump in it so it stays fresh. And you go to the, 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 the pet store. And you buy the 12 cent or 15 cent or whatever they are feeder goldfish. And you say, I would like 50, please. And you throw them in there. And you have no mosquito problems what do you do with them at the end of the year? They're goldfish. I mean, people don't have a problem taking a bluegill or a bass and filleting it, right? Um, I'm not going to eat a goldfish. However, there's a lot of things we can do with them. We can chunk them up and freeze them and use them for catfish bait. Catfish, love them. We can use them for bait as live bait for big fish. We can dig a hole in the garden and bury them. And use them for fertilizer. We can put them on Craigslist and see if anybody's interested in them. Cheap. I'm sure you can figure out something to do with them, but I am not going to feel bad if I kill 20, 30, 40, 50 goldfish. I'm just not. I doesn't, If it bothers you, then don't do it, but that would be a way to handle it. Another situation that you could do is, for instance, we have around here, all of our lakes and ponds and stuff uh, have gambrosia, which are mosquito fish. You have mosquito fish in a, in, in a pond. They are not going to let mosquitoes propagate in there. You go down, you catch a bunch of them, you throw them in that pond at the beginning of your season. This is if you're doing this seasonally with a with a spill tray, and you put them in there. At the end of the season, if you really want to save their lives, take all of your aquatic vegetation out and net as many as you can in. Put them back where they came from. I know technically you're not supposed to, but you're not hurting anything. They came out of there, they can go back there. You'll also find that those guys tend to really ebb in population to a much smaller population at the end of the year, and maybe they can make a three-year winter. I don't know, but I would be careful with that one. Uh preformed pawn shells, I, I kind of look at them like spill trays. They're not deep enough to really be viable in most of your northern climates. I like them the least out of all the options because they cost so much for so little. So you know, like a hundred and ten gallon preformed pawn shell that's designed to look like a pond, will never look like a natural pond. It just won't. And it'll cost $120. Well, you can go get an 8-foot round, 2-foot deep, gray, um, poly stock tank for, I believe, like 280 bucks. I haven't done the math on that, but a 6-foot version is 500 gallons. So you're probably looking at something like 800, 900 gallons. Somewhere in my head, 1,100 gallons is, is, is showing up as is, is what that tank holds for two and a half times the money. So then you also have two foot of depth. If we put that in the ground, it's a lot more stable from freezing solid in temperate climates than those preformed tanks. It's thicker. It's built better. It's designed for cows and pigs to beat the shit out of and for it to survive. So I, I don't really like the pre-formed pond shells, but if that's what you want to use, they're available. I think the biggest bang for the buck in gallons is the above-ground swimming pool. A 24-foot round uh, above-ground pool that generally holds about 4 foot of depth will... Holds somewhere in the neighborhood of 19,000 gallons of water. It's enough water that unless you're in, like I'm talking like Northern Michigan or whatever, it's probably not going to freeze solid. We had a above ground pool in Pennsylvania. It definitely froze over in the winter. I don't remember ever feeling like, oh, there's, there's no water left in there. And if you're using local fish that live in ponds that freeze over, they probably can survive in there. Um, What can and can't, I leave up to you. It is definitely the case that many times it is good to have like a stock tank heater or something that keeps these things from freezing completely over. Even if ice is pretty thick, if there's an opening, you have an air exchange, you have a lot better survival through your winters. There is a difference between water above ground and below ground with survivability in northern climates and just be aware of that. If you live in a southern climate, Where you're going to get some ice. Like, my pool will freeze over sometimes. Even with the pump running. Like, right where the exhaust of the pump is, if we just run the pump right through it, and that way the pump lines and all don't freeze up. But it'll freeze, and they'll have that opening there. And that it might get, and I've seen it maybe as much as an inch thick. When we had, like, a really hard freeze where we didn't come above freezing for, like, seven days. Yes, it happens here. Um, But it didn't get anywhere close to freezing all the way through. That year, my 8-foot timber frame pond, which is about 40 inches deep, got a lot of ice on it, but it came nowhere near to where freezing through. We just kept the pump running, and that kept it from completely icing up. I would say by the last day of that freeze, I was very happy that I had a reserve pump on the shelf. I didn't have to go use it, but that pump was starting to sound like it was about to go. It was revving really hard, but that pump is still running right now. And that was two and a half years ago, with last two, not last winter, the winter before. So, almost three years ago now. And it's still running. So, it made it, but it pushed it right to the edge. That was with no stock tank heaters or anything in there. Now, when that happened, I threw a stock tank heater in there, but it was probably a little too little too late. So, thinking about stock tank heaters there would be a good idea as well. Uh, but above ground swimming pools. And the reason I say bang for the buck is. You can go buy, like, a cheaper, low-end, 24-foot pool. And I don't mean, like, the Walmart one that's really designed to, like, put up and take down. I mean, the regular pool store, you know, it's the smaller rails. It's a little bit less quality of build and all. You can go buy one of those for, like, 1800 bucks. That's a lot of water for 1800 bucks. I wouldn't do it, though. If you go on Craigslist, inevitably, in a very short period of time, sooner or later, you will find somebody near you that wants to get rid of one. And they usually sell them for less than $500, or in often cases, they will give them away for free if you'll come take them down and take them out. They're, they're not actually hard to take down and take away, and they pretty much will fit in the back of a pickup truck once they're taken apart. If they have a liner that's good in them, then what I would personally do, the liners are not that expensive, and you cannot replace a liner in above-ground pools without draining them. And if you got it full of fish, I wouldn't want to do that. I would go buy a new liner. I would take the existing liner. Well, first of all, I would put down some sort of a a bottom liner. And the best thing I can think of to do this with is is remnants of, of, of carpet. A lot of times you can check with carpet companies in your area and say, I just need, as long as it's not completely soaked in animal piss, like your old carpet, I need enough. And they'll give it to you for free. You can lay down two layers of that. Then line it with the liner that it came with, and put a second liner on top of it, and put your cap rails on. Now you got a double liner, and I would buy the best liner you can get. It's going to be 500 $600, and you know what? It's worth it. And that's what I would do. I probably would not go to an EDPM liner which is the ones that I use in my Miyagi's because it would be very expensive and I don't believe it would be necessary. You should also know with above-ground pools, as long as you can find a leak, you can patch a leak. That's a good thing to know. And a lot of times, depending on the location you put in an above-ground pool, if you have a seeping leak, if it's not causing a problem, you don't care. Because usually that's what you get. You don't get big, giant blowouts and the whole thing drains. You get a seeping leak. So you can, you, if you can find it, you can patch it. We recently had to replace the liner in our pool. We had a seeping leak, and it was causing a stinky problem. So that was a pool pool, not a pond pool. But that's something I've always thought about, finding another location on this property and putting in... Because God, I would have a real pond, is the way I would look at that. Um... And the last one is lined-in-ground ponds, and that's either bentonite or pond liners. Bentonite to clay works really good, as long as you do it right. Pond liners are a great way to go. You will always tend to have a problem making them look totally natural, though. A bentonite-lined pond, you can make it look totally natural. Stocking your pond. I believe that a good pond stocking always starts with minnows. And the best minnows are the minnows you can get. And if you can get your minnows locally, out of local water... By trapping or netting them, that would be the way to go. Because whatever lives where you live is going to live where you live in your backyard the same because it lives where you live. And you're probably going to be using some sort of local water source, which is what it's used to living in. For instance, the water here from my well is alkaline. Uh, Incredibly so. It's hard. Incredibly so. Fish in my ponds don't care. They're from local ponds and streams where the water is the same. People are like, oh my god, you put cinder blocks in there for structure. They're going to make the water alkaline. They're they're not as alkaline as the water started. Okay? So that's not going to be a problem. Number two, do not be afraid to use things like cinder block for structure in your ponds. What happens, if if you go feel the cinder blocks in my ponds that have been in there for a year or more, there's a patina on them. A bio patina. They're basically sealed. They'll do what they're going to do initially and then they're not going to do anything. Because biology will seal them. And so start with minnows. If you can't get local minnows, the flathead minnow which you can do either the regular dark black flathead minnows, the silver looking ones. Bait shops sell them like crazy. Or rosy reds. Rosy reds are cool because you can see them. If you live far enough south, you can do guppies. Guppies are a great minnow stand-in because you can make money off of them. But if you live anywhere where your water is going to go below about 65 degrees, all your guppies will die. So don't – you can do it, but, you know, they're going to die every year, and then you have a big pile of dead fish. Um, But some sort of minnows, creek chubs, I have no problem with anything that you can think of that's like a minnow-level species. Snails. People that try to keep snails out of their ponds I think are fools, and I believe all healthy aquatic systems in freshwater anyway have snails. I'd say saltwater too, but I'm just less experienced with it. I have kept fish tanks most of my life. I'm sitting here looking at what, two, four, six, eight, nine fish tanks that I can see from where I'm sitting. They all have snails. And the snails are gonna take over. No they're not. What you always see with snails in a system is that they have a big population explosion, then they eat all the stuff that snails survive on, and then they go away. The only thing that I can say snails do sometimes that cause issues is the little pond snails, which you're going to have anyway. Sometimes they can get into pumps and clog them up. You should be cleaning your pumps regularly anyway. In aquaponic systems where you're using something like a dirty water pump, they're very, very powerful in the way they pull in through the bottom And the snails that go inside are not a problem. They get chopped up and blown through. But what usually happens is they kind of build up on that bottom and they'll clog that pump. So it's something that takes cleaning to do. My bigger pumps, like my Danner Pond Pumps and all the pumps I have uh, for my ponds now, it's no big deal. It really isn't a big deal at all. And if anything, they probably prevent more clogs than they cause because they eat all of the sludge and slime and stuff like that. Snails belong in there. And something I would not have believed until I did it myself, shrimp. And I'm talking about a species of shrimp called neocardania. Neocardania is something very popular in the aquarium industry. They're also known as cherry shrimp because the most popular among them are a bright red. They come in red and purple and orange and yellow. And I have every color under the rainbow, even though the only colors I've ever bought are blue and red. And supposedly, colors like purples and blacks come from different lines and blue and red shouldn't be able to bake them. That is not true. Uh, they, they throw all kinds of colors in their breeding, and these are known as a tropical species. Well, I started reading about how people said, well, I've kept them outside, and I've had ice on the top of the water, and they lived. So I'm like, I have more of these things in my fish tanks than I will ever, ever need. I, one time I thought about breeding them, and I did, and I got lots of them, and I thought about breeding them for color, and, all, and I was like, I don't have time for this. So I started taking just netfuls of them and dumping them into my galvanized tank system. The first winter, I have a video somewhere, I see if I can find it. Nick Ferguson shot it when he was over here and we were catching some for him. And there had to be 10,000 of them in one of the 170-gallon tanks. And what I found is in the winter there's actually more of them. The population goes down in the summer and my 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 estimate on that is the Gambrosia minnow population is really high in the summer, and they're probably eating more of the baby shrimps in the summer. And then as the Gambrosia population drops, they're able to to repopulate. But there's tons of them. I put them in those tanks in the top of my steel steel pond system. It's made of five tanks. I put them in the three top tanks. They went through the drains, and they're now in the lower tanks. And the lower tanks have larger fish that will eat them in it. Uh, big goldfish and all, but also have, they have bullheads. There's some channel cats in there. Um, there are sunfish in there, and they all will absolutely eat them. They breed so fast with all the places to hide that if I go and take a fish net, a dip net, go under the water lettuce and shake the water lettuce, I will come out without even trying with a couple of them. I've put them in just about every system I have, and some systems I see them in, and some I don't. The bigger systems I don't tend to see them. I have a feeling they're in there somewhere. And what I'll probably do is this year, when the population explosion happens again, I'll keep reseeding them. In one of my Miyagi's, my my timber frame ponds, the 8-foot one, first two years of that, I could not get minnows to, to take hold in there because the sunfish that I put in there were basically starving sunfish from local ponds that had not really kind of switched on heavily to the fact that they get fed every day and they just would wipe them out. Now that pond is full of minnows. And it's full of bullheads, and it's full of everything. And that's by creating structure. So there's a lot to be said for things like shrimp. That can be a money thing. Goldfish and koi, I, I have those all over the place. And goldfish are probably better than koi. Uh, they produce less waste. They can handle higher stocking densities. If you want the look of koi and you don't want the size of koi and the additional waste from koi, or maybe you want one big koi and you want other fish in there, that, the, there's a goldfish called shabunkins. They're gorgeous, uh, and they only get about seven, eight inches long. Uh, next up, panfish. Panfish are my favorite, you know, generic term fish to use in these systems for for fish that you're going to eat. These are bluegills. Uh, we call them in the south. We call them perch. Here, I know they're not a real perch. I don't want to go down that road with people ever again. I'm so tired of that. I have one video on YouTube where I just I finally shut the comments off because of people saying they're not a perch. I understand if you're from Michigan, a perch is a yellow perch or a white perch. I get that. Texas, Arkansas, Louisiana, all of the little sunfish they refer to as perch. In Florida, they're generically referred to as brim. In Pennsylvania, they're generically referred to as sunnies. You get the point. Panfish. Um, they are incredibly resilient. Green sunfish. I would put red uh, shell crackers in, in this category. I have all of these. Uh, hybrids out oh, there of uh, the copper nose brim, all of it. They're the bluegills. They are so easy to acquire. They very quickly kind of switch on to, hey, the giant thing outside of there when I can look up through the, the, the water and see brings food and feeds me and they eat it and they grow very quickly. And they are a fantastic fish to eat, even though there's not a big yield off of them. And even as they get bigger, they just don't have a big yield. My favorite way to do panfish, though, is not to fillet them. I feel like you don't get enough of the meat off of them. They're they're a little difficult to do that with. I think the best and highest use of them is cooking them whole and uh, not skinned but scaled. So you scale them, slit the belly, grab the gills, pull everything out. There will usually be some uh, organ along the backbone. Take the fingernail, scrape that out, and then it's ready to cook. Take a sharp knife, cut three slits in the skin, not deep into the flesh, just barely through the skin on both sides. Flavor them as you like and grill them whole like that. And you a little bit of oil on them. They won't stick. You cook them whole. Pull the meat off the bones, and they're just fantastic. If you're catching a 100 of them, and they're all hand-sized, and you have an electric fillet knife, and you want to fillet them, I understand because a fish fry is really good with them too. But when you're going to take... Two to four out of a pond is part of a meal. That's a really good way to go. If you want to make fish tacos, I would go ahead and filet them. But cooked on the bone and with the skin, they have more flavor. And if, if you really want to do something that tastes amazing, take some gochujang, which is the uh, Korean red chili paste, and some fresh garlic. And chop that garlic up and mix it into that chili paste. And then take it with your fingers and rub it into the skin and rub it into those slits and rub it into the chest cavity and grill that until the skin starts to crisp a little bit. The other thing you can do, you do that, you do that, that exact same thing, the garlic and the gochujang, but cut it with something to make it more of like a sauce. So, for instance, a little bit of warm water to kind of melt the gochujang and then maybe um, a little bit of like a fish stock and make it, and then. Simmer that till it's it's nice and thinned out to where it'll it'll drizzle. Take that fish and go ahead and rub a little bit of the sauce into it and fry it in oil till the skin is actually crisp until that little tail crisps up like the most delicious potato chip you ever had. Put that down on a plate and then drizzle that sauce up. Those are both fantastic ways to use fish like that. Great for tilapia too. People say tilapia don't have any flavor. It's a great way to do tilapia. Next up, I put catfish. And I didn't specify blue catfish, channel catfish, bullhead catfish, whatever. I don't think it really matters. Obviously, a channel catfish gets a lot bigger than a bullhead catfish. However, most people live where you can go catch bullheads. I just had a great weekend fishing primary target species bullhead. Got a couple of big channel cats. Those were a nice bonus. Um, But the the thing I talked about yesterday with shucking them, where basically you cut a line down the back, and I, I'll put it, I'll put that video again in the show notes today if you didn't get a chance to see it yesterday, but because it's too hard to explain. But you cut down the back, you pop them open, you grab the spine, you pull them out, and you end up with a whole skinned catfish with no guts in it. And if you're good at it, which I'm not yet, it takes about 15 seconds a piece to do them. I take about a minute a piece to do, and I'm still not getting it perfect, but I'll, I'll get there. Bullheads just do that fantastically. They're an incredibly delicious fish. Those, when you go ahead and shuck them like that, and you've got a little skinless fish, you cut some slits into those, and you use that redfish magic seasoning that I talk about. Uh, Chef Paul Perdom's redfish magic. You sprinkle, you so you you do that, get them nice and dry, a little bit of salt water, pull some of the blood out of them, put a little bit of, once they're out of the water, put some salt on both sides of them, let them sit in like an air rack and dry, like I talked about yesterday. Then hit them with some olive oil, and sprinkle both sides of them with that redfish magic seasoning. Throw them straight on the grill, cook them till they char a little bit on both sides. Pick them up and eat them like chicken wings. You will, if you try that, no matter what your opinion has been of these things up till now, you will kick yourself for everyone you threw back and called a trash fish. Uh, last but not least, I would just say, well, I want to say a little bit about blues and channels. My opinion about channel catfish and blue catfish in an aquatic system, if it's big enough to support them, is you should grow them to at least 24 inches in length before you harvest them. This will take you about two and a half seasons in general to do. If you can legally keep channel catfish or blue catfish at a size that's not quite there, it's one of the big advantages of having these backyard systems, Is I know a lot of people say, you're not supposed to. Who's going to know? Right? There's a lot of things. If I'm allowed to take that fish home from, my, from, from fishing with the regulations and license in my state, it says I can keep you know 12 channel catfish at least 12 inches long, I think is what it is in Texas. On, on any given day is my limit of fish. What I do with that fish when I take it home and when I kill it is up to me. If I'm taking it out of one body of water and putting it into another public body of water that doesn't have them, I can see where the state would have a problem with that. Even if I don't agree, I can understand it. Okay? If I take that fish home, and I have a closed system in my backyard, and I put it in there, who the hell's business is it but mine? And the only way you're going to get arrested for it or a ticket for it is if you tell a game board who asks you what you're doing, so don't do that. But if you can get them and get them home, whether you buy them from a, a hatchery, and I, again, I, I love the fact that if I go out fishing, and I catch a few bluegills, for instance, and they're like... Five and a half inches. Unless I'm really hungry or I just want to have something while I'm camping or whatever, I'm not keeping a five and a half inch bluegill. I'm kind of like the seven inch and up size on, on bluegill because there's so little meat on them. But boy, that fish is going to grow from five and a half inches to seven and a half inches in about four months, well fed. So the fact I can bring that fish home and throw it in my pond, I kind of look at catfish the same way. So if I can catch an 18 inch channel catfish and I can get it home alive, well, I'll throw that in my pond. The two that I caught this weekend, um, they were right at like 18, 19 inches. I had nothing to keep them alive with till I got them home, so they ended up going in a cooler. If I had had a... I didn't plan on having anything like that happen. If I had gotten those home, they would have went in my pond. I like them at two feet or better and up to about 30 inches. 30 inches is the perfect size. It's a big catfish. If you get a blue or a channel that big, to me, the most beautiful way that it can be cooked, you cut the head off, you gut it, you want to get it almost frozen, not quite, but almost like it goes in the freezer so it'll cut nicely for you, so it's nice and firm, and cut about one inch steaks. So if you've ever seen a fish steak where they just cut the fish, you know, right through. And then when you get down to where the tail's pretty small, last six inches, go ahead and fillet that off, and you have two little fillets. Take those steaks, season them how you like, but the redfish magic is really good on them, and a little bit of oil, and throw them straight on the grill. They have when a catfish that size have quite a bit of fat, and it will cook out; it'll look like a white grease. And as it cooks out, it will drop down into the grill and little flare-ups will happen. Keep an eye on it. But it's not like a chick, like a piece of chicken, like dark meat sugar where it can catch on fire. Still can get a little more than you want, but keep an eye on it and get a good sear on both sides of that. You will not believe how delicious catfish is cooked that way. And you'll wonder why the hell it's not in restaurants. These hatcheries that are producing these fish for restaurants are generally killing fish at rate around eighteen to twenty inches in length. If they would grow them out further, I believe there is an entire industry that could be created around that as a premium product catfish steak. And it's and it needs to be done on an open grill for it to be that way. Anyway, some things to think about that nobody thinks about number one, I mentioned already high mineral mulch. Aquatic plants are very high in minerals and micro minerals. They're very good at harvesting it because fish are in there and all kinds of critters are in there pooping, making all these minerals. And these plants are living not in soil but in water. So, we're now when we're talking about doing this, we're not talking about there's nothing wrong. Like today, I cut some um, pickerel rush out of my pond. Now, this is a plant that more grows in a soil base, they're just getting too big, spreading out. Um, you can use that as mulch. But what you really want to use is any sort of a floating, suspended plant that's 100% growing in the water. Because it has to get all of its nutrient from the water. So whatever nutrients available, it's going to take up. When you throw that plant onto a bed, a couple things happen. One, it's like 90% water. So it's going to dry out. Well, it doesn't usually. most of it doesn't evaporate. It soaks into the soil. You've basically just watered that plant that you've mulched for a couple days and it's going to collapse down flat and it's going to make a really great mulch. And as that material breaks down and earthworms love it. If you have earthworms in your garden and you lay a big pile of water lettuce on top of the garden and you come back the next day and you move it out of the way, it will be just worms everywhere underneath it. And if you think it's only moisture, um, get a towel, soak it with water Set it somewhere near it, and compare the two. You'll find a couple worms under the towel, and you'll find a bazillion worms under there. So they're going to eat it, and that's going to build soil for their castings. And it builds incredible soil. Uh, next, uh, predator and pollinator insects. Like I was saying, like you, we have so many bugs, good bugs, coming in to drink water. Well, if a wasp comes and drinks water... And then right over there is a tomato plant, and it's the uh, you know the the wasp that um, that parasitized tomato hornworm. If that wasp comes there for a drink, and there's tomatoes sitting right there, why wouldn't it go over there and look for prey? We have these uh, these really I don't know what they call, but they have a really long thorax, so they got like a big butt, a little head, and they got a really long, skinny, almost looks like a wire that connects back to their butt. And uh, I've seen them just like grab bugs and fly away with them well I see them drinking all the time why wouldn't they, hey look there's all those herbs there, there's all that stuff to get pollen from there's all those insects, like why wouldn't the predator use the water hole as an ambush spot, and the answer is there's no good reason why not, and they do Uh, so they just have really great ability to bring in your predators, but likewise your pollinators, we have bumblebees getting drinks, we have honeybees getting drinks, we have mason bees getting drinks um, I've even done things so that there's a little bit of mud around so that the mason bees can collect mud so that they can use that mud to, uh, to take care of, like, the, what they do is they plug up the holes that they, they lay their eggs in. So that's another resource for them. If you give them resources, they will come. I almost always say of, of aquatic systems, if you build it, they will come. And in that case, the more resources you include, the more that they will come. So predator and pollinator insects are huge. Uh, as well as other predators like frogs, etc. cetera. But people usually do think about those. Breeding fish for true sustainability. People don't think about the fact that if you put enough diversity into an aquatic system, especially once it has enough size, and I would say when you get over about 2,000 gallons, unless it's completely barren in there, the fish are probably going to figure out some way to breed. But th- just this year, I've had bullheads propagate in my uh, 8-foot Miyagi, I've had green sunfish propagate in my 12-foot Miyagi. Now, those are two highly palatable, delicious fish. And if the bullheads are growing in the 8-foot one, I'll, I know that they'll, they'll breed eventually effectively in the 12-foot one if all their babies don't get eaten by channel catfish. And if they do, then that breeding activity is feeding future fish. So it, in some ways, it's just as good. Um, but definitely the fact that you can get fish to the point where they are self-sustaining. Or at least the breeding is a feeding implement. So, for instance, I mentioned I have some of these smaller systems. They are full of minnows. And there are times when the minnow population is pretty decimated in the bigger ponds that have the bigger fish that eat them. I can go take and throw three or four fish pellets in one of those minnow tanks. And it looks like a swarm. I kick one dip net, ploop, into the bigger pond, and they're being fed. And, you know, it'll be a couple weeks before they get wiped out or knocked down in population. They can do it again. And they just breed and they breed. Those are the Gambrosias. They're a live bearer. They're basically the North American guppies. They survive the cold water, unlike the, the, you know, the southern guppy. And, um, those things, like, a female just, like, pops out new babies. Boom, 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 boom. And I, I cannot tell you how quickly they breed. So whether we're breeding the actual fish or we're breeding the food, we can feed our own fish this way. Um, next, bait tanks. It's really cool that like you can take one of your big ponds and take something like a 100-gallon Rubbermaid tub, drill some holes in it, and sink it, but keep the lids, the top, somehow above the, the water level so that you can put fish in there that can't get out. Well... If you're a fisherman like me and you like to, let's say, run jug lines for channel catfish and and blue cats, one of the best baits are itty-bitty bluegills and and sunfish perch, right? So I can go down to the local pond and I can throw some corn in the water and throw a cast net twice and I can come home with a hundred of them. Now, if I just throw them into one of my ponds, they're going to disappear. But if I have an isolation tank, I can throw them in there and any day I want to go fishing, I can go out there, dip net them out and take them fishing. Goldfish, incredible, incredible bait for catfish and bass. Love goldfish, as long as your state doesn't say it's illegal for you to use them. What I found out this year is, I already knew this, but I really found out how much it's true. You put water lettuce with that long dangling root, or you can do what's called a spawning mop, if you don't have aquatic plants for this. The goldfish breed, and they lay their eggs on that. I took some of that out and put it into a new tank, a tank that just had minnows in it. It's Just dozens and dozens, probably hundreds of goldfish in it. Now, more than I can possibly uh, let stay in there long term. Additionally, I had some of the Rubbermaid. I have a Rubbermaid tub, the 100-gallon, like I talked about, sunk into my big uh, timber frame pond. I threw some in there just to throw it in there, and I have baby goldfish went crazy growing in there. So goldfish can actually be propagated and used for bait or used for feed. If you have big catfish and big goldfish in there with them, they'll get along. Like the catfish is not going to try to eat a, you know, a a 20-inch catfish is not going to try to eat a 9-inch goldfish. It, It just doesn't happen. But the babies will all get wiped out. But if we transfer water into the bait tank, now we can propagate them and we can drop them back in. So we have that kind of bait tank. We also, again, have that holding tank for eventual dinner fish. So I can, let's say I go out, fishing it ain't gonna happen today because it's gonna pour let's say i got a hanker and i want to go out fishing this week so i go down to my little pond par park and i catch a uh, uh, 15 bullheads like we did on sunday and i'm like i actually want to keep these and i don't want to let them all go in my ponds i've stocked enough of those in there but it's eight o'clock at night i want to go home and have a drink take a shower not smell like fish anymore and i don't feel like cleaning fish tonight well, if I have one of those submerged tanks, or I have some sort of tank that acts with an overflow, or whatever, anything that isolates them out where they're going to be easy to get back out, I can throw them in there, and I can clean them Saturday afternoon. They can stay there for a week. If anything, they're going to get it, they're going to get in better shape because they're in cleaner, higher quality water than the pond pond I got them out of. Right? So there's there's that too. These are things I don't think people generally think about. Uh, And income potential, I've talked a little bit about that already, but there's all types of income potential. If I cared to do it, I guarantee you if those shrimp that I talked about in those top tanks, just those shrimp alone, if I netted those out uh, in significant numbers, I could do it all winter long, I could take out hundreds a week, and I would never dent the population. There's a huge fanatical concept out there about these shrimp. If I explained that they were from outside, they were from... Been overwintered. They've been living in the basically the outdoor pond system for three years now. Uh, they're of all different colors. You never know what you're going to get. I call them something like mud blood shrimps. I guarantee you, I could sell a hundred of those for twenty bucks, no problem on on, uh, on 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 eBay, and plus shipping, and that would probably be cheap. It really would. And you're going to get some that are natural colors. You get some purple ones. You get some yellow ones. You, I, I, and I've made a little effort to make sure everybody gets some color. And no one would complain about it. And I would I could sell, you know, I'm not going to sell thousands of dollars of them. But I could easily sell $100 a week of those. I don't want to say any more about this because I don't want the show to go too long today. But I did a video a while back about agorism and small homesteads. And it was all built around a little 250-gallon pond. And all the money could come out of it. So I'll put that in the show notes today. So you, if you want to know more about that, you can do that. But definitely income potential. Plants. Uh certain animals are, are highly valuable. People even buy ram's horn snails. And, man, i tell you what, especially certain times of the year, I can go pick 50 ram's horn snails out in about five minutes. Uh, and then next, dealing with different climate types. I said a little bit about this already, but I wanted to say a little bit more. Number one, the further you can go into the ground, the better. The ground is a great insulator, and if you can get at least three foot in the ground then you can probably get through winter in most, not all, climates. Some will need more, but, but probably most you will be able to do so. Deeper is better, and for a lot of reasons. Not just for colder climates, but for hotter climates. That little uh, one-foot-deep, 250-gallon uh, drip tray system in my aviary, the reason that that thing does okay is because there's 60% shade cloth, that casts shade on it for about 80% of the time the sun's up. It's completely covered with aquatic vegetation, so it's shaded. That thing would get steaming hot if it was in direct sunlight in my climate. So just like it would be a problem from freezing all the way through in a cold climate, it can get too hot in a warm climate. The deeper you are, the more efficient the system is, and the deeper relative to the surface area. So... If you could have the same, let's say we had a 5,000-gallon pond, but we cut the surface area in half and went to deeper, it's going to be a much more stable body of water. If you look at the way Jeff Lawton does water features and permaculture design, I'm talking in-ground earthworks ponds, he tries to go with ponds as deep as he can and put lots of small ponds into a system versus one giant lake. Because it brings more diversity, more edge, but more longevity. The pond will be more resilient to evaporation. Deep water, you get a lot more thermal gradient in. So, if you can get it six foot deep, this these even these little ponds in there. Then great. If you're doing, if you're bringing an excavator in, and you're doing a traditional pond or lake, I would like to be minimum if you can do it. If you got the material, you got the, the depth capability, twelve foot deep. You get a pond that has, you know, 40 percent of its area twelve foot deep. You have a very resilient pond as long as it's not a giant lake. Then that's a different story. Now you got to go a lot deeper. Uh, but these smaller ponds, you'd be just amazed what you could do. If you did a pond that was in a neighborhood of twelve by twelve to sixteen by sixteen timber frame, but it was only two foot above grade, but it was four foot below grade. I, I, I think that unless again you're talking Upper Peninsula Michigan or some kind of like you know Northern Maine or something, I think you'd be able to get through just about any winter. I really do. I think in in some cases maybe even those with a little bit of of other mitigation, solar heating should work. Um, I am going to look really hard this this winter at maybe one of, some of my projects to be some of these ponds to put in some solar water heating uh, with pumps either on light activation or timer that pump water very slowly through a solar heater and trickle back into the water. Uh, even when it's, you know, very low temperature outside with the right system, you can take water from about 30 degrees uh, to 50 to 60 degrees during the height of sun during the day. And uh, it could be cold as it wants to at night. 50-degree you know, water is not going not gonna to freeze in one night. Uh, not in my climate, anyway. There's probably a lot of different ways to implement solar heating. The, the other way, it's kind of the same thing. It's the same but different, man, in the words of Tommy Chong. Pump to something small, heat there and return. So what you can do is you take something like a 50-gallon Rubbermaid tub, and you put that above your water level, and you run an overflow from it. And you put some sort of a heater in there. And you run a pump to it. And you run it fairly slowly so that it's warming and then it overflows. Another way you could do it with timers, just if the timer fails, you've got problems. And it depends on how cold we're talking about. If the water needs to be moving to not freeze, it's a different story. But you could run the pump for 15 minutes, turn the pump off for an hour, let it heat, run the pump for 15 minutes, turn, and you're constantly infusing hot water, warmed water anyway, back into that system. You could do that if you're in a situation like mine where most of the time your freezing temperature is going to be at night. Once you get a certain time during the day, you run the pump nonstop. And then during the time of the day where you know you don't have to freeze, and you could come up with automation that says if the temperature is below, then run the pump full. If the pump temperature is above, then run it this. And if the, once the temperature gets to here, stop heating. Like you could make that as much as you want, but there's ways to use pumping to the small to heat. If you think about it, In many ways, it's exactly how a heat-on-demand water heater works. So water's coming into that thing cold, but it's coming out scalding hot because it's going through something, a a, a rapid heating element. I've never really thought about this before, and this may be a bad idea or maybe a good idea. It would seem to me that you could use a heat-on-demand water heater set to a very low heated temperature, running intermittently to keep things from freezing up as well. That would be another way that you could do things. There's probably a lot of ways to do things. Um, shade, when it comes to southern climates, is always good. Shade cloth, trees, floating vegetation. Floating vegetation makes your life easy. The more of a surface area clovered by floating vegetation or vegetation that's partly floating. So I would say a lily pad system is anchored in the ground, so it's not floating vegetation, but the pads themselves are floating. All of that's going to reduce temperature. It creates fish habitat. It keeps algae down. All those plants take up solids. When you pull water lettuce or water hyacinth out, the roots are coated in solids. And those plants take that up. They act like a solid separator. Um, and the biggest thing, I think, is use local fish or degaff fish. What are degaff fish? Don't give a F. Um, <laughs> If you use degaf fish, so like fish that are just hardy for your climate, even if they're from somewhere else. Like if you live in a place where it's not going to freeze, where your water temperature is going to stay above 50 degrees, tilapia are degaf fish. They don't care, and they breed easily, and yeah, right? Um, if you use bullheads, even if you don't live in a place where there's a lot of them around you, but you can get them somehow, they're degap fish. They live in water that you're like, how is there a fish in there? Goldfish are degaf fish. And you actually you, you, they are de-gaff or de-gaff about fish. So either they don't care, or if one dies, you don't care. So use local fish and use really hardy fish species. And my final thoughts are, I, I do believe this is a topic for everyone, and I absolutely believe that it is a survival topic. I believe it's that we've only touched a little bit on what I've learned over the years here with these systems. I've, I'm a person that I have wanted water in my backyard since I was a little bitty boy and I didn't do it for so many years because I always saw it as an expense and problematic and whatever and when we moved here, I wanted to put a pond in, I wanted land that I could put a real pond in, I'm like a half acre pond, even a small pond so badly that I, I can show you a very expensive hole that doesn't hold water and I came to the realization that I would never be able to put a lake on this property of, of any size and that I had to find a way so I played around with some different things and all I can say now is I wish I had done this everywhere I lived I had done something like this that it's done so much for the property it's done so much for the landscape it's done so much for the diversity it's, it's given so much back and I've only begun to, to understand what it can do There's so many additional ways to harness aquaponic components or aquatic vegetation or whatever, and most of you can dig a hole. And if you can dig a hole, everything gets easier because the the, the deeper you can go, the lower the water level of the top of a system, the easier it is to throw that water somewhere else and let it return. So if we're putting ebb and flow beds on it or wicking beds on it, then we lower those beds to a reasonable height. Where if we're doing, you know, my Miyagi's are about forty inches when you're standing. They're right up to about your belly, or you, you know, maybe your lower rib cage. So if you put a two, a, a one foot or two foot deep bed that can return from there, you're looking at something that's up at your eye level, and it's just not very convenient. It doesn't look very nice, whatever. This is why I think for a lot of people, a really good place to start is a big stock tank. An eight-foot stock tank, and you take cinder block, and you circumnavigate that sucker with cinder block, and you create all that edge, all those holes, all those hides. Maybe put some in the center, too, and then put some cover there, and then put some aquatic... You can put a lot of... more than you think. And then if you can dig a hole, and you even put that thing a foot in the ground... It's only a foot above grade. Now we can put in wicking beds or ebb and flow beds that are nice height. They look good. We can put in a second one. So we can take that system. We can do two of those. One at grade, one a foot below grade, return one to the other, and we can still run ebb and flow out of the lower one. Now we have a pretty substantial system. Uh, Let me do the math real quick on that before we wrap up. I, I, I just haven't done that in a while. It's 750 gallons is a, is a two foot deep, eight foot round pond, 750 gallons. So two of those together is about 1500 gallons of water. That is a significant little body of water in a backyard. Two of those set up a lot like my metal pond system. If you've, if you've seen it where you have an upper one and a lower one and a return line. And I would want to go with at least two inch return lines. Nobody ever said, yeah, I wish my return lines were smaller. Um, And I would even say, like, because you have to figure out how to get a bulkhead to attach to kind of that rounded pond. So you can only go so big on your bulkhead. But if you went, like, even an inch and a half on the bulkheads, and if you stepped it up to where the return lines that you bury in the ground for return were three inches, you're going to have a lot less issues with any kind of problems. go big return lines. But that would be, and it would not be that expensive. It really wouldn't be that expensive to do. As good as the Miyagi ponds look, it would cost a lot less money than that. I just searched for eight foot poly stock, uh, poly stock tank on DuckDuckGo, and I found one that is uh, three hundred and seventy four dollars. So two of them you're looking at about what eight hundred bucks call it. I definitely have seen them for less money locally at a place here called Russell Feeds, and the ones that Russell Feeds had would actually hold a little bit more water because they're straight walled. They go straight down. The one that I just found just to get a price for you kind of comes in uh, on a, a kind of a cone shape. And I would prefer them to be as straight-walled as possible. It'll make, if you're going to bury them especially, make them easier to fill and you have more volume for the same surface area on the top. Right, So more water is better. Uh, there's just so much you can do with this. Please consider doing something with it, whether it's a little bitty pond. Whether, no matter what it is, if you play with water, you'll find that it's addictive, Uh, In the best way possible. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up today. Let me remind you that one of the ways you can help support the Survival Podcast and all the work that we do here for you is by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. Today's item of the day has to do with growing with water, but it doesn't have to do with aquatics. It's hydroponics. It's master blend hydroponic fertilizer. This stuff is incredibly, incredibly uh, good bang for the buck. Uh, I worked it out to where, um, if you're looking at, if you, if you're going to go and buy like a 25 pound kit and you're growing greens, the cost of producing the, the, producing the fluid that you use is two and a half cents a gallon using this stuff. I will tell you one thing I've learned since I started using with my hydroponic systems, uh, this year. Don't screw up like I did this. In the PS of the write up today, the stuff is super hydroscopic. That's a fancy way of saying it loves water, just like I do. Except unlike me, who loves water to look at, it loves water to absorb. And if you leave it in a garage, in a, in a bag that you taped up, it will turn into, especially the main master blend fertilizer, will turn into a soup. The calcium nitrate will get kind of caked up. The, the Epsom salt will turn into a brick. But the, um, the master blend, the main ingredient, will turn into something that's unusable. And I have a saying, here's a quote. a bonus quote of the day. Uh, they say experience is the best teacher. I say when it comes to things that hurt or cost money, someone else's experience is the best teacher. You don't want the experience for yourself to learn. Learn from somebody else's mistakes. So this stuff's great. Um, it is the most efficient, cost-wise and growth-wise hydro fertilizer I have found. It's what most professional grow uh, grow houses use. It's just great stuff. Check it out. Master Blends three part combo. Uh, fertilizer, And I give you all the options for the write-up. Remember, if you're on the Daily Mail or the Telegram channel, you'll get notifications whenever I publish anything on the blog, and you won't miss anything. And if you get on the Telegram channel, you'll get things before they sell out. I have a tendency to make things sell out through T-SPAS. Also remember, if you become a member of the Survival Podcast Member Support Brigade, you are doing the most good for helping support the work that we did. Um, I've been doing this show now since 2008. I've been doing it full-time since 2010. There is no world in which I can ethically take enough sponsors to do this show full-time. It cannot be done. There is no world in which I can make all of my money off affiliate marketing and do it ethically. There's ways I can do it, but not that match my ethics. My view is I bring you just enough so that you get my advertising. I hope it seems more like a service. I hope the product of the day seems like something. You know, that's useful, and I know that now, and if I need it, I know I can trust that. I don't want to be a product pusher. I want to provide information, and those of you that listen every day and say, you know what, this show's totally worth 20 cents an episode, You guys make it possible. So, thank you for that. And if you've never become a member or you used to be a member, consider coming back. Just go to survivalpodcast.com, click on members, sign up. And if you're not familiar with the program, just know this there's so many, it's a discount membership program. There's so many discounts, the things you're probably buying anyway that if you use the discounts, you'll more than get your money back. So it doesn't actually cost you anything if you use the discounts. Then my supporting vendors want to stick around because they do lots of business, and everybody wins. Win, win, win three ways. With that, let's uh, let's uh, wrap up the show with the song of the day. This is Chill Music Week. Uh, these are all songs that when I'm sitting on the back porch with the dogs having a, br- a drink, and I just want to not give a damn in the best way possible, I put this music on. Um... There's one guy that's on like if you look at that playlist and you like just look at artist 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 and count artists probably he's on there more than any other artist is Van Morrison. Uh, Van Morrison has made some of the best music in the world like that ever. This is probably my favorite song by Van Morrison and it stoned me. I have always loved this song and when I looked up the genus of this song I loved I loved it even more. I always saw this song as, like, you know, it's talking about being stoned, but it has nothing to do with drugs. That it has to do with just nature and living life and community and people in the best way possible. And if you read the lyrics to it, you totally see that. Um, he talks about, you know, wanting to go fishing outside the county fair, being there with his friend, fishing poles in hand, tackle on their back, finally getting a ride after the rain stopped, going down to the water. I don't know that really they ever did any fishing. They still thought they were going to, but they definitely went swimming. They went to walk home. They were singing a song. Their throats were getting dry. They wanted to drink. An old man gave them some stuff out of a gallon jar. And I always looked at that to be like moonshine. And I always saw this song as being... An experience that was real. I just, all, just something about this song. It always made me feel like this is a real story about his life. And I know some artists are so good they can make you believe that when it's not true. But I just knew that this was a real experience out of somebody's life, if not his. And so I always thought it was like having having a good good adult beverage at the end of it, and not really that being what get you stoned, but it's just part of the whole experience. And I always. Related this song to the time in my life you know my teens and my early 20s when me and buddies would go fishing and going down the river kind of my my right before and right after the army years and having a lot of experiences very similar to this um, turns out this experience happened when Van was 12 years old and the old man that lived in a little village by the creek it was water from a creek it's creek water. And he said when he had that drink out of that bottle, it was like a transcendental experience. It's like five minutes, the world just stopped and everything was calm and peaceful. And this song was recapturing that moment. And that doesn't mean that the water that he drank out of the bottle was really what did it. The song says, Oh, the water. Oh, the water. It's all the water. Why do you think I chose it for today's show? Right? The water from the rain, the water from the creek, the water from the bottle. And that drink at the end of that day, with his best friend as a kid, some old kind stranger, and just the whole experience, what happened was, that was the end of it, and a reflection. Being 12, old enough to understand this is something special, created a pause, Man, if you want to talk about a song that will chill you out, this song, just the sound of it, the music, the words, all will do that. But when you know the story, it's even better. And that's often the case. Things that are good, when you know the story behind them, they're even better. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast.
0: Half a mile from the county fair, and the rain came pouring down. Me and Billy standing there With a silver half a crown Had a full of fishing rod And the tackle on our backs We just stood there getting wet With our backs against the fence Oh, the water Oh, the water Oh, the water, oh, the water. Oh, the water. Hope it don't rain on and yeah, it's me to my soul. Stone be just like Jelly Rose. And yeah, it's me. Yet yeah, it storm me to my soul. Storm be just like going home. In yeah, its stone yeah, me. and the rain the sun came up and we were getting dry almost let a pickup truck nearly pass us by so he jumped right in in the driver's glen then he dropped us up the road Then we looked at the swim and we jumped right in not to mention fishing pools oh the water Yeah, that stormed me to my soul Stormed me just like Chilly Road Yeah, that stormed me Yeah, that stormed me to my soul Stormed me just like going home Yeah, that stormed We saw the man from across the road With the sunshine in his eyes Well, he lived all alone in his own little home With a great, big gallon jar. There were bottles to one for me and you And he said, hey, there you are Get myself from the mountain stream yet it stoned me to my soul Saw me just like Jilly Road And it stoned me yet it stoned me to my soul Saw me just like going home yet it stoned me